Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Morning, Dave. Good to see you. Hey, dude. I'm ready to go. All right. All right. (laughs) I don't think we're transmitting a lot of germs here. No. Do you guys wear masks in the church? or We may be one of the few churches in our community that um, we mask. I, I feel like it's a political thing here. You know, regardless of where you stand on it, sometimes I, I think that the politics plays more say than actual science. Here's the same thing, too. The party who's actually in power right now, which is with our president, they're they're even asking for our vote to them, you know, to receive the vaccinations. <laughs> They're manipulating the whole, the whole vaccination thing. Vote for me, you might not die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I take my mask off to preach, but that's about it. So, I discovered I can't preach and breathe at the same time with a mask on. <laughs> I think all the young people here that we associate with have had it. Okay. And but we we started the book club, you know, with Maisie and Kelsey, and then we have an old lady that comes, and Maisie called us on a Monday and said, "Yep, I've got it. You guys are all exposed." I was really scared for Lois, and then I started feeling chest pains, and I thought, "Oh no, how stupid to die of a book club." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we probably had it. We just never knew. Yeah, I didn't want to find out. I don't think I ever had it, but when I I thought I did, I thought, I don't think I want to know. (laughs) Even with the the vaccines, when people ask me, I'm so afraid of needles. I'm like, I'm not getting the vaccine, but it's not because of a personal conviction against it. I just don't want a needle in my skin. (laughs) I'd rather die. If if it doesn't come in pills, I don't want it. (laughs) Matt, are you hearing us or are you there? I am here. I'm actually at the, I'm getting my car, my oil changed and stuff. So I'm in the service uh, center. So everyone's listening to your, you know, to the theology and, and you know, the teaching. So just <laughs> all, all good. I'm gl- I need to, to work with the oil people here then. Uh, yeah. No, there, yeah, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of people in here. So just make sure that you're shining your light. <laughs> I felt that in the reading and in the material, something was missing. And, of course, what is missing in that history is, I think, the significance of what is taking place theologically. You're not, you're not going to go through something like the Constantinian shift without a drastic theological shift. You know, it, by the medieval period, they're going to begin to refer to the fall of Constantine. They're, they're beginning to understand that this had drastic consequences for the church. This isn't just a a modern understanding. I I just think we always have the same problem. How do you describe this problem historically? Can you describe what was in fact a, you know, a fall personally in terms of a corporate fall? But I think that's in fact quite accurate. That if you describe, you know, what is the human predicament? What is it? Where is it that we go wrong? I think that we continually go wrong in regard to the law. 
then you all understand what I mean by that. It's not that the law is a problem, but it is our, our the trust that we would put in the law or the idea that there is life in the law. In some way, you're imagining that you can engineer death for life, right? That's a simple definition of the problem that is there in Genesis, but it's there throughout. But isn't that precisely what happens with Constantine? That he's going to begin, in other words, the church is doing what people have always done, but now they're doing it under the auspices, partly of the church, of saying that we're going to obtain peace through war, that corporately we're going to do death and violence, and that's going to be our means to life, right? Simple, simple idea. But with that simple idea, I presume that there is a shift, that with the shift, in other words, there's an ethical shift, but that ethical shift takes place with a different definition or a different focus on the essence of God, where before the love of God or Christ as model, and I think those two things always have to go together, that when we, you know, love is, go is going to become a kind of ambiguous term that Augustine is going to continue to use that term, but in his Neoplatonic understanding, can mean by love the idea that you can persecute the heretics, you can wield the sword uh, against your enemies, you can kill people and still love them. In other words, that there is a, a kind of equivocal meaning to all these terms. That there is then a subtle shift, a subtle focus. And this is actually in Brad Jerzak, he's talking about the idea that the way that we know God is through Christ and that's what gets lost here. As we shift to the notion of freedom, and they're going to begin, that's really the value system that's shifted up, freedom and will, and freedom and will always go together. And so they're struggling to define what, what is the essence of God. It isn't freedom the idea of being free of any constraint? The total freedom would be to be totally unconstrained. And can't we say of God that he's totally unconstrained? For all practical purposes, that's what they're saying. I think it's disastrous. Think in terms of a, of a human idea of freedom. I would have an infinite variety of choices. I would be constrained by nothing. The circumstance of my life, the time and place of my life, my finitude does not constrain me. I noticed in David Bentley Hart, he, he just goes through modernity and every phase of it, philosophical, the theological, that every aspect of it is this idea of freedom of the will. Once you start talking this way, all you're doing is describing a power. You're just describing raw power. And that's what they're going to begin to say, is that God is God and we're not. Romans 9, that seems to be a real popular passage in which, you know, Calvin is laying out the, you know, Jacob and Esau, you know, the pot may, he uses that whole thing. But of course, Calvin is dependent. Uh, Calvin is, I think, the final step. That is, the first step is taken by Augustine. The final step is taken by Calvin, in which we can no longer assign to God any kind of meaningful notion of goodness that we can get a handle on. That is, goodness is whatever God does, and if God does it, it's good. Jerzak's point, and I think he's right, is this is, a, this is a tension that's there. This is the difference between 
the Mosaic law and what's happening in Christ. That is that Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the corrective. That there is an undoing of this law that binds us. It, what, what do we mean by law? It is just the symbolic order. It could be the law of reason. It could be ethics, you know, in just war. That's really what we're talking about, is a justifiable system of violence. I think actually what's happening in the cogito, in modern modernity, the law of reason is the idea that in some way, that through uh, natural theology, that would be another way of talking about the same thing. I think all of this is a turn to the law. We can literally talk about the Constantinian shift as a kind of corporate return to law and think here of Romans 7. As long as you're thought or your understanding is constrained, I mean, that's really what we're describing, that we're enslaved to the law of sin and death, that you understand who God is then through this interpretive system. Paul is going to just, I think that's really what the, the, the problem is. He does not have access to Abba, Father, apart from Christ, but he imagines that he has access to God through the law. Isn't that precisely what is happening in the turn to notions of freedom of the will and freedom and the focus on the will? That suddenly we're no longer talking about personhood in any normative sense, but we're talking about raw power. Calvin is just going to assign everything that happens to God, that evil even is assigned to God that in this, you know, the turn to the just war tradition and the taking up, and of course they're not, uh, um, the way I'm saying this is not exactly correct, because I think this culminates in the, the Protestant Reformation when the just war tradition is actually integrated into the creeds, the Augsburg Confession, the actually the Anglican Church, they all go through the same, they incorporate just war. As long as we're dealing in the Catholic period of the church, that I think that the peace tradition survives, that there is always holy times, there's always holy places, and the idea is that there's holy people that are set aside, that are doing, in other words, there is a capacity to be able to literally trace that. But of course, I, th I think the idea is that we just need to understand the priesthood of all believers, combine that then with this understanding that, oh yeah, we're all to be of that, that holy understanding. So that, that's my notion of the theological significance that is unfolding with the incorporation of, I mean, it, it is the incorporation of just war, and, and the allowance for princes and uh, rulers and soldiers with, within the church. So then the Constantinian shift is the end justifies the means. What was lost was what Jesus modeled for us was a way to live, wasn't was an ethic. And the Constantinian shift um, kind of pushed that aside and just, I mean, yeah, th these are okay, but in certain circumstances, these things can be, be justified. I mean, it, it, I, don't, I don't know if that's natural theology. We basically did away with that under no circumstances do you, do you shift uh, the plan, and the plan shifted. 
it's never in some sense, except for the small pockets that we've seen throughout history, it's, it's never recovered. The formula that Paul gives us, and I think we can just always apply the formula. You can always identify what's happening. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Constantine says yes. And the Constantinian church says yes. Is the law sin? In other words, he uses this formula that Zizek calls perversion. The idea of the pervert is serving the law on the other side. That if the law is sin, then we sin in order to establish the law. And of course, just war is a a sinful law. That's literally what you're describing. That you're going to establish the law through the uh, uh, violence, through, through sin. That is always the thing that we're looking for. I, I think that's what's happening in natural theology. In, in other words, they're going to begin to interpret, you know, our problem in Romans, that they begin to interpret the Gentiles, you know, have a law written on the heart, which I just think is obviously talking about Christians. We always think of the idea of available light. Oh, that's kind of an interesting side discussion that we can have that discussion. But you understand that available light or the idea of a natural theology is a necessary part of a contractual theology. Because the idea is that people know enough to be culpable. Of course, that's not what Paul's talking about. That, in other words, it's a misconstrual. But I think that verse, that the misconstrual of that first section of, of Romans gives us then the idea that you're describing. That is that what comes with natural theology, what comes with the law, the law is always the law perverted. It is always the the formulas, the law given under the formulas that Paul gives it. Uh, that is that you're with the law, you're going to imagine that you gain peace through violence. You gain life through death. The idea here is that you're going to read God that way too. In other words, it's the law becomes your interpretive frame for God himself. And my point would be that's not a person anymore. You're not really dealing with the person of God. I think that the the Cartesian cogito is doing to humans what we would do to God. I think, okay, what am I? I'm the thinking thing. How do you get to the thinking thing? This is Kant, by the way. This I know this all sounds strange, but this is Kant's breakdown of the Cartesian cogito. I think you could do the same. You could do the same psychoanalytic procedure with God. You can't approach the thinking thing because it is an entity unto itself. It's a, a completely autonomous. Descartes, in positing the cogito, is thinking of an immortal soul that that there's a kind of innate immortality and it arises or it's uh, located in this thinking thing. In other words, you can't say anything about it because the symbolic system itself is removed from it. That's what we're doing to God when we begin to focus on freedom and will, freedom of the will. The personhood is going to be drained out of God. The goodness, you know, we'll still use language like goodness and love and and evil, but all those words are going to lose their meaning because they become, in Calvin's point, you know, whatever the pleasure of God is. Would you say then that Gnosticism that seems to seems to be peeking its head, maybe in some of the letters of John and, and maybe even some of Paul's work, 
that the fear that they had came to reality? Yeah, yeah, I think it is Gnostic. I just think Gnosticism, it, it is the prototype of the thing we're describing. In John and in the, in the New Testament, we're probably not dealing with a full-blown Gnosticism, but I, that doesn't really matter. The proto-Gnosticism or the Neoplatonism, to my mind, they're all of a part. They're all of the same thing. And that is you're going to begin to divide. You're going to, you're going to divide, and you need the divide. You need the dualism. You need the knowledge of good and evil. You need the binaries. You need the dialectic. You need the law. In other words, it's all the same thing for the system to run. And of course, the system you're describing is a closed system. It's a system that is self-explanatory, that you can grasp it from within. I, maybe, I don't know if it's too strong to say it this way, but I just think sin is always a dualism. Sin is always Romans 7, in which you're pitted against yourself. And that tends to give rise to a full-blown religious or philosophical dualism that accommodates the psychological dualism. Sin is a dualism, and Gnosticism is the prototypical picture of that. Surely there has to be a hole in that thesis there somewhere. But well, I mean, I, I like it. I mean, especially as you refer to Romans 7, because I remember in our Romans class, the I part got, you know, sticking out. You know, there's a part of me that wants to learn more, like, where did this all go off track? It seems like it, little parts of it happened early on. By the time you get to Constantine and then Augustine, and you begin to see a, ma a major shift. But obviously, I think there would be many examples where people don't fall into that. that there's going to be a lot of theology that we could point to and say, yeah, there was that, that drift, but not everybody went with it. Not everybody's uh, 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 Augustinian, and even Augustine can be better than himself. When we talk about the fall with Constantine, what we're doing simultaneously and saying, well, there's this preservation, and I think Bainton does a good, good job with that. I guess you could read that in one of two ways. Well, we're always all fallen, and we're always working within a fallen system and being rescued out of it. So Constantinianism is just more of that, and that our turn to some sort of pristine institution or authority or frame of thought or tradition or mode is not going to save us. Christ will save us. And the way that in which we come to Christ is always through the uh, a kind of, and I don't mean this, you know, Jesus is my personal savior, but we can't lose the personhood of God. And so it is personal. Uh, it pertains to his personhood and it pertains to our personhood I think our tendency is to uh, play the game of the law and to put that burden on God so that ironically, you understand this all works out and in voluntarism in the medieval period in which you get the flattening out. In other words, it's just going to be the university of being. It's more of the same. It is definitive of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, that's the, the great tragedy in all of this. It's not that Protestantism is a departure from this. It's that Protestantism takes the worst part of this and aggravates it so that we're not saved from the Constantinian shift. 
I think we are more Constantinian in Protestantism than, than the Roman Church because they always had that preservation of a peaceful understanding in, in various places. We lose that in the Reformation, but of course we gain it in the peace churches. It's either a full embodied peace church or it's a, com- a complete refutation that begins to unfold in the Augustinian understanding. That's the God of Luther. That's the God of Calvin. And I'm not, again, even with that, I'm not just throwing out Lutheranism, but Luther is going to talk about God as a kind of ineffable, that we do not have access to God. And that's precisely what we're describing. What we're describing is a pure reason that caves in on itself. In other words, it, it leaves that thinking thing in God just as it does in us. What we're talking about is so foreign to the church, the American church. I don't want to speak for, for Mexico or Canada here, um, although my guess is, is when I say American church, I mean the whole continent, probably. I, I remember my first time ever, I started running. Uh, I had just gotten a smartphone, and so I got an audio subscription, and I'm like, huh, I've heard of this guy, N.T. Wright. Uh, I'm going to listen to one of his books. I started listening to one of his books to the point where like, what? He started talking about new heavens, new earth. I, I'm paraphrasing, but how foolish it is to think we get saved to go to heaven. I was so like taken back by that, that I, I reached out to one of uh, my theologian friends and I'm like, is this stuff really real? I mean, you know, do I need to stop listening to this? And it's dangerous. Said, yeah, is this dangerous? Yeah, is this dangerous stuff, right? <laughs> because the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe in something about this earth, you know, and I don't want to be a Jehovah's Witness. And and they said, no, most most modern scholarship has been there for years. It's just the church that hasn't. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, modern scholarship can be just as wrong, right? You know, we can bash on people like Calvin and, you know, parts of Augustine and stuff like that, and they can be wrong. So we know that 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 little audio book that I started listening to took me down a rabbit hole that has led to this moment here, listening, you know, to you. But it's foreign within our church. It's, wow. it's foreign. Now, the good news is, is I uh, Easter Sunday... I was telling a friend, I said, I'm tired of preaching sermons that I got to try to somehow prove that Jesus resurrected. Everybody that shows up on Sunday yeah. already believes he's resurrected. So yeah. I talked about new heavens and, and new earth. I'm telling you, I actually got good response out of that. I, I had one little lady who I thought, you know, oh, here it comes. She said, man, I really appreciate that, you know. And, and then I had a one of my elders and his wife said, you know, we were visiting with some Catholic friends of ours and they said, yeah, we've believed that for a long time. I've seen people's hearts being stirred because I think if you read the Bible, uh, <laughs> it's actually there. Yeah. But it's so, it's so strong. It's a yeah, it's everywhere. Power. Yeah, it's a dark power. I don't know that we'll overturn it. Let me say a couple things on that. The theological significance of resurrection gets left out of this because our theology is actually taken care of in the grave, in the death of Jesus. The resurrected Jesus is is nice, but you wouldn't want him hanging around all the time uh, because we need the dead Jesus, really, D- the dead and dying Jesus, because death is the thing we're always manipulating. The resurrected Jesus in penal substitution, in divine satisfaction, 
is a footnote to the main thing so that Christ himself, you know, is made to do what the pagan sacrifices did. It's always a manipulation. It's always the same thing. It is in some way a manipulation of death to gain life. And your point, you know, with the resurrection, once you do that, you don't know what to do with the resurrection. So we spend all of our time proving the resurrection. But I think in the theology that you're the new heavens and new earth, as as uh, Wright talks about it, suddenly resurrection is front and center. That That's the, the significance in Paul, in Romans, that you can't talk about the cross separate from the resurrection. And that's just what's meant, you know, when you say, I'm lifted up. Well, he's referring to the cross, but it's certainly not the cross exclusive of the resurrection. That lifting up is kind of a continuous event. So I think it is just simple things that you, how you saved. Well, that's the story of resurrection. You know, we're saved through resurrection. And of course, the idea is not that we continue to manipulate death, is that we don't, the, the, the resurrection is we don't need to play that game anymore. You know, what Mary does, she's lingering at the tomb. The whole idea is, no, leave the tomb. You should have just handed them the Bible. And the Bible, uh, I think that a key thing that comes out is the the Hart's retranslation of uh, Romans 5. Because the mistranslation is very telling. That mistranslation, it all fits into this conversation, too. Because the Augustinian, in other words, you shift the focus off of death as being a problem to toward which sin is oriented and then you lose the sensibility that violence is a way of deploying death all of that gets lost conveniently in the latin mistranslation but then the crusade starts it all over again the first crusade and ever after it's an attempt to regain the sepulcher of christ christianity becomes a tomb religion and tomb religions do what the crusades do you know, this is what Jesus said, that you build the tombs of the prophets, and by doing so, you participate in guilt, that it obscures the futility of death and of killing. And I think that's what's missing in this, you know, in this just war and this kind of, first of all, to, to just locate yourself, you know, locate where we're at in all this. It's a difficult task because there's nowhere in this country, and that can't be right, but in any Protestant institution, that it's very difficult to just go and get an insight into how pro what has happened, what this shift is, because most people dwell within it. They, they live within this kind of Lutheran Reformed theology. And even Karl Barth, you know, is going to be in the American version of Karl Barth, he's going to be reduced down to that too. So even American Barthianism isn't going to save you from it. So it's it's real hard to to get a, a grip on it. But having said that, I think the the resolution to it is actually in other words, you don't need to uh, necessarily you're not going to acquaint your church people with this history, and they're not going to uh, understand the theological philosophical shift. But of course, the answer to it is quite simple, and that is that how we know God is through Jesus. That who God is, is revealed to us in Christ. All that Christ is, is who God is. I think that's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the New Testament that gets lost with Constantine and with Augustine, because you can't talk about God and Jesus in that way. You need, in order, you need a dualism in the Godhead. 
you need to pit what God the Father is doing over and against what God the Son is doing. And through that dualism, you're going to get, you know, all natural theology. And, and in other words, you can do away with the idea that our access to God is through Christ. So I think it is just the presentation of Christ is our access to who God is. And, and God is Christ-like. This keeps appearing in this country in things like open theology. I think the answer, to the, the open theology, the answer to that is this. Oh, who God is is to be found in Christ. We don't need to play those games patropassionism, the idea that does the father suffer? Oh, he can't suffer, does God? I don't think we need to play those games, or it certainly doesn't need to be the focus. So I think the the problem, yeah, it's very difficult for people to, to get a grip on, oh, what happened to us? But I think people can get a grip on the understanding of, of Christ as, as model. That is the resolution. This is a dynamic unfolding thing because Jesus is a person and we are understanding that. And so that's the other thing to say is we, you know, that I think we we can, we've talked about this. I think we can make progress theologically, that we can do this better and better. You can see that there is an inadequate understanding in terms of slavery. There's an inadequate understanding in the area of the role of women. There's actually a kind of inadequate understanding even in regard to violence that people, you know, we see early theologians still depicting a, a using violence, even in origin, who was a pacifist, and yet he didn't understand the violence in, inherent in something, an institu- institution like slavery. So I think that we can get better at this. I think that's a hopeful thing. The Just War had, kind of going back to something that you said maybe a month ago, the story of Christianity, a lot of it we haven't heard yet because you know, it's it's like the the leper colony in Liberia. Nobody's talking about that. Uh, nobody's talking about about their faith. You know, but we know the faith of our political leaders, and and we we know the names of Billy Graham and Franklin Graham. And I said that, but you know, one of the questions I raised, and that is that Bainton is is himself, even though he's a pacifist, he's saying, well, the just war tradition may have paid, played a positive role. And I, I think he's right. In other words, that if you're in a time like it comes about in Europe, in which you have all these various city-states and princes, but they're all Catholic, or they're all part of a singular church, they're still fighting each other, but they're going to play fair. You have whole wars in which nobody got killed. I, I did notice in his history, they, you know, it's kind of like, okay, you can kill but not within the building. You have to be 30 feet outside the building. You can't kill women, children, you know, priests, nuns, or anybody that decides to take protection, you know, or, or, and I, yeah. And then he mentioned, you know, that there was only a handful that died here because of this. And so I never, I guess I never picked up on that being a a positive contribution. I I suppose it is, you know, there's a difference between two people dying and 10,000. Yeah. I mean, even in World War II, they, you know, the famous story that the the German line and the American line on on Christmas Eve, they all came together and they were singing Silent Night. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we just make every night Christmas Eve? Or in the, the first church, that's what they're doing. They're saying, well, there are these sacred precincts and these sacred people. And just war then is, in a sense, it's enforceable that people will actually obey the rules. 
they're uh, uh, accountable to the church or they're accountable in some way, you know, to the Pope maybe. Or, uh, and so you have many instances and Bainton attaches a lot of significance to this of arbitration. Instead of doing war, you could do a history of peace and say, well, look, here's where a war didn't happen. That peace was arbitrated. Actually, you know, I was uh, uh, communicating with, you don't know who C.J. Dole is, but Alan and Matt know. telling me, oh, you know, an assignment in this class should be give them a, a potential war situation and how they actually arbitrated it because of a, a passive or peaceful understanding. Oh, I think that there are many, many instances where because of this peaceful understanding, there is a decrease. There is an arbitration. In Japan, they have what is called a peace constitution. It was MacArthur's you know, constitution, but actually in the peace constitution, a, a Christian Japanese man got very much involved in that. And in the Japanese peace constitution, literally, war is never an alternative to solving a problem. You cannot, Japanese cannot do any kind of aggressive war. Now, the Americans don't like that because they'd like the Japanese to get involved in all of our wars. And the right wing liberal democratic party in Japan doesn't like it. But to increase right now the War budget is 2% of the total budget in Japan. It, you know, for years, it was just 1%. It's const, you're going to have to change the Constitution to increase that amount. And, and so my point is that this is, it has had a, a historical impact. But of course, this is kind of the thing that Balthazar says. And, and I think he's right, that with the unleashing of greater good, there's also the unleashing of greater evil. And I think historically, that's what we see, that with the Protestant Reformation, I literally think there is the opening up of the possibility of total war. The 20th century is a, a century in which you have world war, total war, in which in World War II, then the obliteration of civilian population becomes part of the strategy in the war. That had never happened, obliterating a population and culminating in the dropping of the two atomic bombs in Japan. Bainton is right that the just war tradition, of course, but then, of course, we've lost it. Uh, that, that's the irony, is that, you know, we have a world court, we have the United Nations. Maybe it works. I think it works to a degree. And those are ideas that I think have evolved out of an understanding of arbitrating, as, you, know, you know, as a peace church, I think we need to recognize that for some people, as far as you're going to get, is the idea of a just war tradition. Maybe that's a step that at least be open to having a conversation. Uh, even with the just war theory, they still had to do you know, penance whenever they, they kill. So if you had to do penance, then even just war should have been discarded as a possibility in all this. Because, I mean, any type of war should have been canceled just by by that single thing. You have to do penance. Yeah. You're already recognizing there's something wrong with it. It's a sin. Yeah. The, what we're describing is that we imagine that killing can be normalized. 
But the trauma, the PTSD that comes from war, you know, where does that come from? We often think it's just the exposure to traumatic events, but actually it's something very specific. That people exposed to the same trauma or, you know, devastation as in the civilian bombings, they don't experience PTSD like those who are themselves killing and having to kill in war. In other words, it's the act of killing. It's the act that creates the psychological guilt that I think is what precisely what Christ is describing. What we would tend to do, you know, this is that we've created a whole nation state and an ideology, all of which would train us to normalize the idea that killing is okay. And I think it destroys our humanity, not just the humanity of the one being killed, but it destroys of the one who, the, the humanity of the one that kills. Do you think that might pertain to the killing that took place at the cross? And that Christ may be revealing that this thing that you imagine is necessary and normal and saving and salvific is the thing that Christ is exposing for what it really is. We can't see what's right there before us. And that is that people are undone by violence, uh, that their humanity is lost to them through violence. And human sacrifice in war, you know, there's more people that have been sacrificed in war. You know, think of the, they discovered just in 2005, they discovered the Aztec, is that, isn't that in Mexico, Alan, where they've discovered the, uh, the mountain of skulls and you know, where the Aztecs were sacrificing. Uh, I'm not sure if the one you're referring to was the one here, but there's there's some places here that has had, you know, that had that. So <laughs> it wouldn't be too far of a, a guess. <laughs> so we, we think we're highly civilized because we don't do human sacrifice. But of course, oh, we sacrifice many more people than the Aztecs ever sacrificed. Uh, and it's our own sons and daughters that we sacrifice in war. So that the, the religion of nationalism, the religion of the nation state, is like the pagan religions in that in some way it would teach us that we need the sacred, uh, that there is redemptive violence. And of course, violence is never redemptive. It's, it is destructive to, the, to everyone involved in it. Nationalism is another version of Moloch. I think so, yeah. The theological significance of that is what needs to be brought out. If we can get a handle on violence is sin and peace is salvation and recognize violence is just all of those dualisms and things that we would do to try to get a handle. And it's only through the, the person and work of Christ that, that peace can be established. That's my conclusion. Sounds good to me. Don't kill people. Yeah. Unless it's necessary in Christian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think Alan's listening, Paul. <laughs> I just, I didn't know what this class was focusing on, but the first sentence said something like the fall of the church, the fall of the church. And I was just, I kind of, I kind of wondered about that first sentence. Yeah, you can't. Maybe I'm just. Right, right. You can't identify the church with any uh, visible. Or if you do, then then you're gonna have to talk about it as fallen. So that's your choice. Yeah, it probably is a poor choice of words. But 
at least the visible institution that we have a record of, in as much as it was Constantinian was fallen. I, I don't think I would ever want to talk about the church as in those terms, but but I would also wondered about kind of what would it have looked like historically for the church to have been, you know, victorious or, or triumphant. Well, part of the discussion and, it, and the reason that we, you know, we use the, the language there is that the admittance of violent people and an ethic that would allow them to do that, maybe subconsciously, but what you have to do is change up a focus on the essence of God to freedom rather than love. And that's precisely what happens in Augustine. It unfolds in medieval theology, culminating in Calvinism, but actually culminating in the Reformation. And so to talk about it, that, that this is going to have a historical enduring impact. The alternative to that is love, is, uh, uh, and uh, by love, peace, and an understanding of God that continues to emphasize who God is in Christ. I think that was the summation of the, the conversation, that we know who God is in Christ, and the standard theology is going to abandon that. In uh, uh, Augustinianism, in med medieval voluntarism, and in uh, the Reformation. And so there is a kind of straight line that we can talk about a failure of thought and tie that in then to modernity. We need to tell the story as bleakly and then add, and nonetheless, we understand, and this was my opening lecture in this class, is to say that we can trace this and sometimes maybe we can't trace it. But we, we're here. The gospel survives. And where the gospel is, there is the church. And so in spite of this visible uh, history, there is that which uh, maybe the underdog history has been obscured. Not to say it's not just as real, but it has not had the power of hierarchy and institutions. Uh, that story maybe can't be completely told, but we believe it. You know... If, if Eastern Orthodoxy is institutional Christianity, and if institutional Christianity is a failed form of the faith, well, then what does that make me? Well, let me come to your defense. <laughs> I think that we're all going to have to negotiate our participation in the, the forms of Christianity that are available to us. And to say that, you know, because we participate with maybe there's some even a Baptist or two in the church I go to, God forbid, maybe a full-blown Calvinist. Uh, I can still fellowship. I can still do church in a place that maybe is not pristine and pure. And I, I agree, of course, but I'd also want to say, okay, but in the institutional quote unquote churches, or like at least like the, like the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, right? What do we mean by that? Well, you know, that there's bishops, that there's people who we say, well, they, they got together inspired by the Holy Spirit, you know, they picked the books of the Bible, they decided, you know, here's what the sacraments are, you know, here's the proper, you know, here's the liturgy, here's what ethics, you know, uh, here's Christology, like, that's the part that I struggle with, because I, I too, I don't think that violence is allowed, I don't think that our Lord allows for violence, I really don't, I think he commands us 
to love our enemies and to, to not resist the evil man with force. I think that that's right there and it's clear. And I think that that's what the early church taught. And obviously that didn't manifest itself. That's the, and I don't think that that's just the ideal. I think that that's Christianity. <laughs> you know, that's what the master taught. Yeah. You know, if we were a Shaolin monk, if we were a group of Shaolin monks and the master taught, you know, a certain way to do, you know, to, to do tiger style. And we said, no, actually tiger style is uh, this other. So peace is the teaching of Christ. And I think that's the key here. I think our understanding that we're describing, we can't divorce peace from the gospel. And what we mean by peace is nonviolence. That is the gospel. That doesn't mean that people can't know Jesus through the haze of their sin. Obviously, we all do. Step one in, all, in this whole thing, let's get an ideal of what it is we're supposed to be. And unfortunately, I think we've even lost the ideal. It is about both ethics and doctrine, like McClendon said, you know, and witness. They're all deeply intertwined. Right, right. But to just boil down Christianity to just saying, oh, all it is is nonviolent peace, without reference to saying that, no, a huge part of it is, is that God became a human being in Christ. You know, he had two natures. He was fully human. The, the peace of Christ that is enacted in the person of Christ is inclusive of all that Christ is. That's, that's part of the problem with the word nonviolence, that it is a kind of negative term. The idea is that the, the fullness of Christ uh, gives forth in, in, in this peace that we have that is otherwise unavailable, I think. I would say that nonviolence is not the peace of Christ, but the peace of Christ uh, manifests itself in, in, in nonviolence. That's one of the manifestations, but that's not the fullness of it. And the other thing is to acknowledge. In other words, we do need these models. We need these people who have walked beside us. We need the, the tradition. But it's not that we can turn to any of these things to enact this peace for us. It's something that we, it is the transformation of our mind. There is no uh, point at which we can imagine that an authority or, you know, that somebody's going to do this for you. So there is always the critical faculty involved. Yeah. Here's my, I think this is my problem in a nutshell. How do we avoid having 50,000 denominations? Uh, you don't. And I don't care about it because I, we're, what we've just said is that we're checking out of that game. I'm not playing that game. That the idea that a human uh, institution is definitive of the church is what gives you 50,000 denominations. But I presume that in our true fellowship with Christ, the human designations, human divisions, that those things are not then able to control. To imagine that that is simply a tragedy, that is to make the mistake that I'm saying, no, what you said, you've actually said, well, the church is not defined by those institutions. And I think that's true, but to also imagine that it's not that big of a deal. How are we ever going to, first of all, just be united on basic things? And maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're right. Maybe it just doesn't matter. Maybe like it doesn't matter if you're, uh, you know, Orthodox, you know, whatever, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, maybe West, Westboro Baptist. I don't know. David, give us the answer to all of our problems. <laughs>
Don't you love whenever Paul springs that on you? <laughs> yeah, like, you gotta stop doing that, Paul. I don't know the answer. That's that's why I'm in this class. <laughs> um, I don't know the answer. I, I I I just know that Jesus is Lord, and you know, in some sense, I just need to give people the freedom to differ and and maybe not get so have discussion, right? You know, um, but not destroy my penal substitution friend or whatever right you know and and maybe you know golly i don't know maybe love people and i mean because i know i don't have it right and i know that we're all gonna fall short i i do think i think some of the beauty is is learning from from our mistakes and so i think like with constantine probably there were certain things where certain things seem right seem good and in the end, maybe they weren't so good. Maybe some things were, but you begin to change. You know, I my my master's was in church growth. I look at that now, and I think, you know, the people that taught me uh, were genuine and, and great people, but I don't know that I um, buy that anymore, believe that. And so I just, maybe I just begin to make the changes. And I don't know, Matt or Paul. I'm... No, that's okay. I think that that's the right answer. I mean, we're not, but the first thing that we're called to is to be is to love like that is the first thing that we're called to is i think love and also for in humility those christians during the fourth century and 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 all the way through it's kind of like they deserve our our respect you know absolutely so yeah i i think in our discussion actually we uh we we took that into account that even constantine was apparently uh confronted with a peaceable gospel but i think that what is obvious from history is that this had an impact on theology and had an impact on the church that maybe it wasn't all for the, for the better. And so we need to critically sort that out. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully come to something to improve. Cause that's the other thing that the more nonviolent we become, the more godlike we become. And I, and mm-hmm. I believe that let's take it further. Let's build upon, let's build upon what's been handed down to us. We think that in our context, St. Basil, you know, these other guys would be would be with us if we were like, yeah, but now we live in a nuclear age. We're not just talking about skirmishes on the outside of the empire with spears and javelins. We're talking about nuclear weapons when the earth, humanity is at stake. We're not just pacifists. We're anti-war. We're anti-racism. We're saying you guys said what you said because that's what the Holy Spirit led you to say. And now here's what the Holy Spirit is leading us to say. Yeah, that we can take what they built and and continue to build. And of course, all of us, including yourself, at some point, you're going to say, I'll agree with this council, but I won't agree with that one. So it's not like anybody's going to go into this and, and say, oh, the council's got it right. So we're all going to do it critically. It's just a, a matter of where we lay that critical line down. Right. You know, it's like I, I like the fifth ecumenical council. I just, I have problems with. I'm feeling what you're saying. In other words, we are faced with a kind of, you called it nihilism. And my point was to say, that's okay. In other words, I, I understand there is a kind of darkness here. I think the darkness, in fact, drives us to cling, to, to understand that our only hope is Christ. And that's the, the whole notion of faith. So that describing this darkness, describing this failure, is not necessarily a weakening of our, our faith, but it is to turn us to the one in whom we have faith. 
and to understand that we're always going to have to be working through the person and work of Christ as our hermeneutic, our foundation. And certainly we engage in these things. We need the tradition. We need scripture. We need all of these things. But it's Christ that is whom we have faith in. It's not really that we have faith even in the, the church. It's not that we have faith even simply in the Bible or that we have faith in tradition. No, we have faith in Christ. You know the writings of the of the fathers and the in the, the, these different things that there is hope to be had there that we really can maybe even like a Lacanian sense or like a you know that that those guys uh, Bonhoeffer it doesn't matter right as long as they're as long as Christ is there in their words right they can mediate to us Christ right that's and right so, but it continues to be Christ and the difference is that faith is a full fully orbed personal thing that we have faith in the person of christ he's and he and he's the capital p person so we're all just participating and sharing right right and that's that would be my point is that we we all then as we participate in that our own personhood comes to its fullness but we would never want to mistake one who is participating in christ but we don't have christ apart do we let me ask you this paul do we have our lord jesus christ apart from the human no i i guess it becomes more apparent to me sometimes when i'm talking to people who are filled with the the life of christ and whenever i read people who are filled with the life of christ well even nathaniel you know jesus says here is a man in whom there is no guile we can talk about that we don't need to just relegate everybody to the same level right but I, th- you know, that perfection is something that, by definition, is in Christ. This is a kind of shift in the notion of sin. There is the perfection of humanity of Adam in Christ that is undoing the failure in the first Adam. I do follow Paul there that yeah. those are, that all are found in the first Adam. Right. But the first Adam then is completed in the second Adam. So the discussion about sin in a kind of trivial sense, I think, gets us a, a bit confused. That's right. I wonder, too, about the typology there that, that John is using. You know, Nathaniel is under the fig tree. You know, he's under the tree. Uh, and but, but there's no guy. You know? He's not like these other Jews in some way. I think the reference, I think, is to Jacob in whom the guile was found and uh, of course I, yeah. yeah so that it, it is a description of nathaniel coming to christ but to your point we also part of the conversation was to say yeah you the the peace survives and you can't talk about the gospel not surviving and to my mind if peace doesn't survive the gospel doesn't survive but of course it did survive it survived in all kinds of places and that was that that is partly there in Bainton. That was partly what we were running. Uh, did I sum that up, Dave? What what our discussion was? You always do, even if I don't understand it. <laughs> Alan, good to see you, man. It was good to see you guys. Good to see you, I'll Alan. See you next week. All right. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. 
If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.